sermon of this afternoon is based on God's word and the church can attest to this. The Lord gave church names to Heidelberg Baptist Church. You'll find that on page 528 of the Book of Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, if we will, Christ says. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from our lost state, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us of this life, we struggle time and again with our sense of self-worth. The one battles with it more than the other. The one also battles with it more openly than the other does. But in our heart of hearts, we all have those moments when we don't like ourselves. The Lord God comes to us with his revelation about himself and his saving work in Jesus Christ. God's revelation about himself addresses us also on the matter of how we see ourselves, what thoughts we are to have about ourselves. Last week when we spoke about our office of duties, I said that God created us to have dominion over all creation, and the point includes that we are to control our thoughts and moods and attitudes. Well now, congregation, God's revelation of himself we confess it in Lord's Day 13, gives us grounds to know that we are very special in his eyes. That's a reality we need to work with when we struggle with our sense of self-worth. I'll summarize the sermon with this theme. God's only begotten Son is our Lord. We'll see, first, the profound content of this confession. Second, the powerful consequence of Jesus' own words in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 16. The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that he gave himself to God, show whatever characteristics apply to God, apply also to Jesus Christ. He asked you to include, he says,
such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. So, as the Church confesses in Article 1 of the Vatican Confession, that God is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good, is true not just of God the Father, but also of God the Son. As God's only begotten Son, Jesus is true God in every sense of Godhead. And therefore that list of characteristics is true with respect to him also. It is true the only begotten Son of God came to earth in Bethlehem to live amongst men. While he lived on earth, so much of these divine characteristics were hidden. The eye of man saw but a piece of the flesh. But always he was and he remains the eternal, natural Son of God. Yes, true God and therefore eternal, incomprehensible, immutable, almighty, just, good, perfectly wise with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This confession has a direct bearing on this title, Lord. The term Lord is used countless times by clergy and Christians with a range of meanings. At the simplest level, the term is the equivalent of sir and simply reflects respect, much in the same way that a student calls his teacher, sir. I think, for example, of how the Samaritan woman at the well of Siphon addressed Jesus. Sir, she says, give me this water, John 4, verse 15, and also the verse 11. More often, the term Lord involves the notion of authority, similar to the term king in Matthew 16, 24, and Matthew 29, verse 40. Here, our thoughts may go to the custom of centuries ago, where European societies had kings and barons and lords and knights, and common people looked up to these kings and lords obeyed them. With this understanding of the word Lord, we come close to the material of our Lord's Prayer, where we confess that Jesus Christ has ransomed us so that we are his own possession. He's our master, he's our own Lord. Valuable as this comparison with the figures of history may be, brothers and sisters, it does not do justice to what the Lord has revealed about the term Lord in the Bible. If you will bear with me for a moment, I need to tell you something about the Hebrew and Greek languages. You are aware that in our translation of the Old Testament, the term Lord appears three times. You find it printed in your Bibles in lowercase letters, and then the term captures the notion of master. It translates to the Hebrew word Adonai. So a servant addressed can use the term my Lord. That same phrase also gets used in relation to God. But the point is that someone addresses God as his master, his own. But the Old Testament also has thousands of instances where the term Lord appears in uppercase letters. You've heard it numerous times in the past, where the term Lord appears in capital letters as lowercase. The Hebrew has the word Yahweh, we understand that this name Lord, Yahweh, is used of God Almighty alone. Well now, the Hebrew Old Testament is translated into Greek not 
after the Old Testament, at least a couple of centuries before the Jews wrote the Bible. The thing is, now that the translators have chosen, the thing is, now the translators have chosen to use one Greek word to translate both those two Greeks. Both the Hebrew word Adonai and the Hebrew word Yahweh comes from the Greek as Kyrios. And that term Testament into the Hebrew language as Lord. What does that mean? Well, on the night of Jesus' birth, an angel appeared to the shepherds in the fields with the good news that there was born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2, verse 11. What did that sentence mean to the shepherds? The angel says that the baby is the Kyrios, which is the Lord. These shepherds hear that term with their Old Testament ears. And what do they hear? That a pastor is born, the equivalent of a saint? Or do they hear the term Kyrios, name of a covenant God, and so conclude that Yahweh is born? Some verses later, we read that the shepherds reported their experiences to others. And these others marveled at what they'd seen. The point is that they were astonished and surprised. Given the Old Testament background and the use of the word kurios, their astonishment and their surprise is justified. But the kurios born is to say that Yahweh is born. How astonishing. I draw your attention also to Elizabeth's birth and Mary and Queen Elizabeth, Luke 1, verse 43. Elizabeth welcomed Mary with this question. Why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. What does Elizabeth mean with the term kurios here? Simply that the child in Mary's womb will pass away from pain? Given that the Greek term kurios, which translates in the Old Testament as Yahweh, there is certainly more cause than most of the readers would acknowledge that the coming baby would come from royalty. Here's an awareness begotten Son of God, through God the Father, and the Holy Spirit becomes a man. Yahweh saves the world. This understanding of the term Lord, brothers and sisters, gives profound depth to what God's covenant with sinners is really all about. Almighty God had established a covenant of love with people in the Garden of Eden, found himself in people as their God, made these people his children. With the fall into sin, the human race rejected God, broke that covenant, and joined the devil. But God is Yahweh, which is I am, who I am. And the point is that he does what he says he'll do, is faithful to his promises. He had bound himself with a covenant of love with the human race. So directly after the fall, he remained faithful to that covenant and its promises and obligations. The promise was that if man would eat the forbidden fruit, man would die eternally. Yet God wished to be God for people and wanted people to be his children. So the Lord promised that the seed of a woman would take on himself the punishment that people deserved so that God's children might go free. But who will
that that seed of the woman be indeed a man of God himself in the person of his son. Yahweh, the God of the covenant, sent his son to earth in order to ransom from Satan's power those whom God chose to love him. This son of God, when he came to earth, remained true God. Therefore the title Yahweh belongs to him also. Yes, that's why the angels called the angel calls him Kurios, Yahweh. When he came into his covenant with sinners, God went that far to demonstrate his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Kurios lived on earth as a true man for some thirty three years. True, the human eye did not see him as a true God, Yahweh in the flesh. The human eye saw only a man. He is one who can raise the dead and heal the sick with Jesus. But Yahweh he was, the God of the covenant, come in the flesh. That is why on the cross of Calvary, he could fight against sin and the devil and triumph. Yes, that is why on the cross of Calvary, he could pay for sin with Christ's his blood and so ransom God's children from the power of the devil. Here is displayed the radical faithfulness of God and the promises he made in the beginning. He is Yahweh, thoroughly faithful. So, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the disciple Thomas met him and made the statement of faith, My Lord and my God. This is what he said of Jesus. He uses the word Lord, kurios. He sets the terms side by side with the word God. And so there is no ambiguity as to what Thomas meant when he called Jesus kurios. He was deliberately attaching to Jesus the Old Testament personal name of God, Yahweh. That Jesus should suffer and die on the cross to pay for sin and so deliver Thomas from Satan's power. Here it's pointed to the glorious heights of what it means to be Lord God, Yahweh, the God of the covenant. And exactly because this covenant God is so faithful, the salvation was very certain for Thomas and all of us. Some short weeks after Thomas confessed his questioning his identity, God the Father took the triumphant Christ to heaven and gave him a seat at his right hand. The day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter described to his hearers what the significance was of his ascension. Peter said, and let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Again, we have the word kurios. This time, though, it appears in the context of Peter's quote from Psalm 110 about the Lord God saying, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here, the picture is very much that comparison of being a master over another. That's exactly Jesus' words before his ascension All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and I'm doing it. And that is why John in his vision can see Jesus having a name written on his robe 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Don't waste time on that foolish language. That passage from Acts 2, brothers and sisters, relates far, far more than simply the notion that God gives authority to the angels in heaven. The one who receives this total authority over every creature of heaven and earth, over angels and demons and people and wind, is none other than the Son of God, Yahweh. In fact, it's exactly because he's the Son of God, Yahweh, that this total authority is given to him. Truly awesome, he is. Master and owner, because he is truly awesome, Yahweh. And that identity is going to determine how he carries out his function as King of Kings and as Lord of Lords. He rules today as the God of the covenant. What he does in governing world history, what he does in governing the weather, what he does in governing the ups and downs of the stock market, is all determined by his identity as truly awesome, as Yahweh, as God of the covenant. With the church of all ages, we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We understand it now. Here's a most profound confession. That confession, of course, must have consequences. And that's our question for you. The powerful consequences of this confession. There are, brothers and sisters, two consequences that I want to draw out of that statement. The first relates to safety. The second to faith. If Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Master, we are, as our Lord's Day says it, his own possession. In the course of the history of the world, there have been numerous lords, many with much property. Stories abound of how the child of one of these lords was given and held for ransom. The point is, there was a certain danger that came with belonging to a lord. We belong to the lord. And there in English, that, I mean, we stand a chance of being kidnapped, snatched away from the power and safety of the lord. The answer, of course, is implicitly no. The lord God has made his covenant of grace with you and me, and so claimed us as his. So deep is his love for his people, and so deep is his commitment to his covenant, that God sent his only begotten son to pay for our sins. This son of God, true God, Yahweh, laid down his life to deliver you and me from the bondage of the devil. So, how important are you in the eyes of God? How special, how valuable to him? Will he permit us to somehow end up outside the throne room here so that we are vulnerable to an enemy snatching us from his care? We know the answer. We are his possession and therefore so special to him that he never lets us outside his grace and grace. In fact, our Lord, who is truly awesome, has received such power that he himself guarantees that not a hair fall from our head apart from the will of our God. More still, precisely because Jesus Christ is truly awesome, Yahweh, can he bind us to himself and himself to us 
with all the love and mercy that characterizes God's covenant with his people. And this reality, brothers and sisters, that produces the glorious confession of your faithful witness, says the church here, Christ has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins in his precious blood, has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Notice, here's the same gift as Lord's Day 1, our own comfort from life and death. We confess there that I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from all the power of the devil. Possession, says Lord's Day 13. Belong day one. Both mean I am the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is this Christ? Says the church in Lord's Day 13, this Christ is none other than Yahweh, the one who today has all authority in heaven and on earth, the very same one who established with me this covenant of grace. I'm so completely safe in this because it is so precious to me. So precious, in fact, that he laid down his life in order to ransom me from Satan's power. This almighty God of the covenant will use his infinite power to save me from any attack of the devil. That is why I am safe, completely and perfectly safe in him all the time. Yes, brothers and sisters, this is the faith the Holy Spirit has worked in your hearts and minds. So we join the church of all ages in confessing Sunday by Sunday that the only begotten Son of God is also our Lord. Exactly because the Holy Spirit has worked this faith in our hearts, we are obligated to follow that this is a gospel we need to worship concretely through faith's ups and downs of life. You know how it goes. Time and again, it's our sins in the faith, but we can't seem to get above our hurry to raise a prick and to let our explosive temper fly or to waste time in sin. It bothers us. It bothers us to the point that we feel useless and worthless. We don't like ourselves, and we are sure God doesn't like us either. And prayer becomes so difficult. God to our feelings is so far away. The Lord, beloved, comes to us today to remind us of who he is and therefore of what we are. Lord, he is our master, and yet not a small master, but the almighty who is given all authority in heaven and on earth. Lord, he is our master, and yet not a brute or heartless despot, but Yahweh, the Son of God who keeps the covenant even laid down his life to pay for our sins and to ransom us. So we're precious to him, very precious. Shall I then let myself wallow in my feelings of worthlessness and uselessness? No, beloved, no. I'm so valuable to God. The son gave his life for me. Now I'm the property of the Lord of Lords. Surely I shouldn't be worthless. And exactly because he knows 
how we keep struggling with our sense of self, how we keep staring at our brokenness, and sets before us at this time the table of the Lord. He instructs us to sit at that table. Why? To impress on us how much he loves us, how much he gave for us with his blood. He instructs us to sit at table with him, with who? With Kulios, the exalted master, who is himself the God of the cousins. He wants to dine with us. Why? To encourage us in the faith, to impress on us how rich he is, how precious he is. And so to assure us too how completely safe we are in his sovereign and almighty hand. Nobody in all creation can touch us apart from him. That glorious safety is the one consequence that flows from his identity as Lord. The second revolves around his place as servant. The thought is this, if he is our Lord, we are his possessions to follow every moment of the day as his servants. It's true that the concept of obedience as servants is wrong for our sinful flesh. We want to do things our way. That's why I stress again this whole word. The lords of history were sinful men and certainly could impose harsh, even brutal laws on their subjects, laws very painful to obey. But that is not the case with the instructions given us by our Lord in heaven. This Lord is Yahweh, the God of the covenant, the one who loves us with a perfect love. Witness how much he emptied himself in order to free us from the power of the devil. If this kurios now gives us particular instructions, will those instructions be painful to us? Or will those instructions be inherently good for us? We know well what the answer is. His identity as Lord guarantees us positive value and his instructions. That is why when we have faith in this Lord, we delight in God's law. We want to do it. But we experience it time and again in our sinful hearts when we could buck against his instructions, declare these instructions bad for us. Dear brothers and sisters, we meet again to work with the faith the Lord God has placed in our hearts. If we confess Sunday by Sunday that Jesus Christ is Kurios, the God of the covenant, then we also need to draw the inevitable consequence and admit that yes, his instructions are good, and obeying them is healthy. Abraham Kuyper once said so correctly that there was not a square inch of life in which Christ did not say, mine. What happens when the church calls him Christ the man? If he is Kurios of the church, Therefore, all that's done here must conform to his revealed will. That's exactly true in the workshed or in the kitchen, equally true on Saturday night or Wednesday morning. All that happens at work or in the kitchen on Saturday or on Wednesday falls under Christ's command. If he is Lord of all, therefore, all that's done all the time anywhere must conform to his revealed will unbeliever he has his head in the sand he will not not acknowledge that reality so david warns us woe to him who confesses sunday by sunday the 
Amen.